a bunch of disgraces. Wow. You never cease to impress me. With my mad rapping skills. Is that what that was? Oh, I thought, never mind. Oh. I guess not. Welcome to the No Budget Filmmaking Podcast. Presented by Cinema Summit. A podcast about the art of making films, no matter how small the budget. And now, here are your hosts, Alex Dark and Trevor L. Nelson. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is episode 16 of the No Budget Filmmaking Podcast. I'm Alex Dark. And I am Trevor L. Nelson, and we have been teasing it forever. I know you guys have been excited, all three listeners of this podcast. Yes. Zeph is in the house. Zeph We've been Coda. talking about it. Uh, Zeph Coda, director, right. writer of The Trouble Once Upon a Time in the Bronx. He's in-house with us, in the heat, suffering with us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, welcome, man. Yeah, It's great welcome. to be here, guys. Thanks yeah. for having me. No problem, no problem. And to start it off... Guess what? We're all drinking Kona beer. Yeah, again. Again. For the we, last... This is about 15 podcasts. <laughs> I like it's going it. to go on for another 20 podcasts because of how much Kona Brewing Company beer we have. Yes. Don't um, worry. We'll get back to you, Tito's. Oh, uh, Tito's. We'll come back. We'll don't come worry. Back. That doesn't spoil. Beer maybe spoils. I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We're I don't, I, I never, it never sits around long enough for me to see if it spoils. Um, so, instead of what's new with us, because pff, nothing's new with us, Zeph. What brings you out to L.A.? What's new with you? So, I recently completed my film. It's called The Trouble. The full title is The Trouble, Once Upon a Time in the Bronx. Uh, it's actually going to be screening at... We're having our premiere screening at the Action on Film Festival next month. In nice. La, out in Las Vegas. Nice. Great. Yeah, so... Oh, God, yeah. that's going to be... Oh, man, are you going to even make it to your film, film oh, screening? Oh, yeah, I will. Yeah, for sure. They'll wheel you in like in a drunken stupor and just be like, <laughs> Hey, here you go. Yeah, You're like, I just won $200. It's funny because our producer happens to be out there the same exact weekend for a bachelor party. Oh, oh like the same nice. exact weekend. So that's oh, pretty, that's just bad. Out. Convenient. That's so bad. <laughs> bad, but it's good. Um, okay, yeah. so that, you got that going. So there's else? that. So um, I'm here for some, some meetings. I have a bunch of friends in L.A. And I'm also doing some commercial work and some music video type of work and that sort of thing. Nice. As, as well as developing my next feature. Nice. Which it's, it's still in the very, very early stages but, um, Excellent. I mean, you sound like you belong in LA already. I got some meetings, I got some music videos. I'm gonna go stroll in the development. beach. Yeah, in development. Yeah. I yeah, got right. a script in development. New, I have show numerous products people. in various stages <laughs> of yeah. development. So uh, we'll see what we got. But Perfect. all right, well, sweet. Um, so let's just jump into it um, because we have a lot of questions for you. Sure. Uh, first off, what's your social security number <laughs> yeah. and home address? Also, you can you don't have to say it on the podcast, but what's your pin number? Just write it down. Pin number. <laughs> Just blink for every number. 855. Is, is that it. what these armed men yeah. are we just, outside yeah. the yeah. house? We, just, we basically just do a podcast so we can steal people's identities. <laughs> That's the so only far, we've only there. stolen our, our own identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, first question, or actually, yeah, just give us a little bit of your background, how you got into film, and uh, what got you interested in this crazy industry. So it's a good question. I was always into movies. I loved movies from being a kid going to the movies i was the type of kid when my dad gave me um a high eight camera he gave me like a sony camcorder and i used to love filming with it i figured out how to wire two vcrs together to kind of nice yeah yep i did that thing yep yep make title every time there was a project for let's say school sounds eerily familiar instead of doing the presentation i always opted for the video and i really like 
spent more time on making the titles for the video than the actual content. Are you of- my twin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are we long lost brothers? Because yeah. it sounds eerily familiar. Yes. But okay, keep going. Keep going. And so then, you know, I was always just really into it. And when I was in high school, I, there was basically I saw an ad or, or a flyer rather posted all across my high school for and it said we're looking for an apprentice for a video editor. And then me and my friend Jeff, basically, we went around the school and we took down every single flyer. There were like nice. dozens of flyers Ooh. across the school. We took down every Sabotage. single flyer. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> but I, I called that number and it was a guy named Anthony that had a small production studio in Mount Vernon, New York, which is like 25 minutes outside of the city. And I lived near there at the time and uh, went in for the interview. I said, I'd really like to be, you know, work for you as the apprentice editor. And they were doing, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that. And at that time, it was like linear decks. Oh. It was old school. Like, oh. we're talking like 1998, 1999. Oh, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so he was like, yeah, you got the job, you know? And I was like, great. I was excited. He's like, it's funny. Nobody else called me. I was going to ask. I was <laughs> going to ask. <laughs> were you the great. only one who came in? I was, like, the I was the only one that came in. work? All right. And so <laughs> then I, I loved it. Nice. You know, I was editing weddings and bar mitzvahs, but I just really got into it. And so at the time, I was also taking some classes at the School of Visual Arts on the weekends with my friend Mike Reich, who's into it. And he's actually a filmmaker based out here nowadays. But he was one of my first friends that was really kind of serious about it. And so then we took this 8-millimeter directing course on Saturdays. And at first, I'll be honest with you guys, finding out how much work filmmaking entails was kind of daunting to the 16 year old me when i was like a junior in high school i was like whoa like this is i love movies but this is like intense 33 year old me still thinks it's daunting sometimes so yeah don't worry i didn't get that realization until i was in college (laughs) studying film i was like oh no this is already too deep this is (laughs) you're already at the point of no return where are my assistants to bring me lunch (laughs) so there was that and then also about the fact that i i'm the son of immigrants you know my parents came from Albania and being Albanian, you know, they didn't, they never said don't become a filmmaker or anything like that. It just felt like a pipe dream. It, it just seemed like something that wasn't for us. It seemed like, oh, well, you have to be born into that or you have to already be wealthy or, you know, have those connections. And so I didn't pursue it in college. I okay. actually went to school for business. And so then I graduated college. I started my own business. I was doing welding iron work at the time. And something totally different than cinema. Yeah. And I was doing okay with it, you know. But then I realized, hey, you know what? Life is too short to just do something just for money. You know, I really thought about my life. And I was like, I kind of considered what would I do if money wasn't a factor? I'm like, well, it's, it's a no-brainer. I would be involved with filmmaking for sure. And Sweet. then I sort of plunged back into that. And awesome. I was kind of thinking at the time, hey, should I go to – film school, you know, because I'm sort of starting from scratch, or should I use that money and kind of bankroll my first short films? And I kind of opted to make my own short films and just kind of self-finance those. And I partnered up with a guy named George Rudai, who went to film school, and my friend Joel Martinez went to film school. And uh, they were kind of my early production partners. So in the early days, they used to chew me out. They're like, oh, Zef, (laughs) this is this, this is that. You know, but then I got to a point where they're like, Zeph, you didn't need to go to film school. Nice. You know? Nice. Nice. Because I kind of made up for it by just every book I could pick up, every movie with the director's audio commentary, DVD, 
everything that I could consume, I was just completely into it. I was completely immersed myself into cinema and just learning about filmmaking. So I was extremely proactive. And then just from making the shorts, at first it was sort of an unmitigated disaster. But then, yeah. you know, I kind of learned it was sort of trial by fire. And I just kept trying to improve. I, th- I think what sounds we, yeah, that sounds similar like, to the this film school experience. Yeah, exactly. We were kind of in the same boat where we were we were at school studying film, but at the same time it was kind of in our hands, and we had to go out and do our own projects and like get involved in things and try to like you know weasel our way into different projects so we could get the hands-on experience. Because yeah. really, Trevor and I, we majored in the movie watching type of movie watching, the easy one. <laughs> <laughs> we watch movies and say how they made us feel. Yep. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's funny because a lot of people who say, you know, should I go to film school or not? The biggest thing is that we always tell people is that, you know what? It doesn't hurt to go to film school, but at the same time, you learn so much when you're actually making the movies or making short films that. You learn a lot more because it's hands-on, and it's easy to you know sit in a classroom and somebody tell you like, well, this is how you change, you know, these are f-stops, and this is uh, how you uh, you know uh, the composition of a of a, fr- a framing of a scene. It's like okay, that's cool, but until you get on set, you really don't know anything. Like no matter right. what they say, you don't know anything. There's something Absolutely. about a big burly grip yelling at you because you're setting up a C stand wrong that really sticks in your head. As opposed to just reading it in a book, you know? I'm going to remember. I'm going to call you the Big Burly Grip from now on, Alex. You are my Big Burly Grip. Oh, Um, sweet. (laughs) All right, so let's get into more specifics. Let's get into your your debut feature, The Trouble. Absolutely. Um, So give us an idea of what the movie is about, and more importantly, how you came up with the idea. All right. So I was actually in around 2014... I was at the Can- I was at the Cannes Film Festival attending a producer's workshop out there in France, and I was really trying to get a bigger budget film developed that I thought was going to be my first feature film. Okay. I wrote a script. It was sort of an independent comedy, sort of a dramedy, you know, drama slash comedy mm-hmm. that you know I thought was sort of interesting, and I co-wrote it with uh, Mark Marini, who is my cousin, but we've co- co-written a lot of projects together. Nice, including The Trouble. Um, but I found that as a first time filmmaker, getting a project developed around the million dollar range was just, it's just too big of an ask and it, it seemed too difficult. And then one day when I came back, uh, George Rudai, who basically was my producing partner, he said, Hey, you know, the cost of making features has plummeted down compared to what it used to be. You know, why don't we just make a feature? Why don't we just make a low pool our money together? And just make a feature film, and then we could show people what we could do. You know, I'm like, all right, let's give it a shot. You know, but for me, it's important. Obviously, the 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 idea is important. So, you know, I just didn't want to just plunge into something. You know, so I was just kind of keeping myself open to what is the type of idea that could lend itself to a low budget feature. Yeah. And at the time, I was actually watching a lot of mumblecore films. And obviously, I don't know if you guys are familiar with any of those kind of films, like the guys like Joe Swanberg made, and they were they were kind of cropping up in 2005. Mark Digi- Duplass, my, yeah, Mark my Duplass, boy. yeah, the Duplass brothers, yeah. yeah, they were sort of the pioneers of mumblecore. Yep. yep. But and what I liked about mumblecore was this, this kind of punk rock attitude about making a movie. Yeah. They just we're like, all right, we're going to get some actors. We're going to get a location. We're just going to freaking do it. We're not going to wait for a studio to green light us. We, like we're going to do it on a small budget. And I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. But what I didn't really like about Mumblecore 
is it seemed like they didn't pay any attention to any cinematic <laughs> structure. <laughs> it wasn't cinematic enough for my for my own taste and what I'm trying to, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. You know. That's fair. That's fair. Brings to the table. So I'm like, is there some way we could do both? Is there some way we could do kind of like a mumblecore-ish kind of thing? At first, we thought the film would maybe be improvised because I, I came up with this idea. I'm like, hey, at first, I, it was a very broad concept. Like... One day, just the idea came to me, geek versus thug. I'm like, that's uh-huh. kind of interesting. Like the co- juxtaposition vers- like from a geek and a thug. Mm-hmm. Just like, I was like, let's make like this mumblecore-ish kind of movie, geek versus thug. Like something like that. Before, before you go any further, sure. how about you explain to everyone who, ha- who, haven't, who can't see the film yet what the movie is about? Absolutely. So the movie is centered, it's, it's, we're calling it sort of an urban western, but it's really about a guy named Billy who is he seems like a geek he plays on a lot of online poker he doesn't get out too much and all of a sudden his favorite websites to play poker they get shut down okay all the websites get shut down so he starts playing in these in-person games and then he's totally a fish out of water it turns out these games get busted and a, the thug that runs these games named enzo he blames billy for the fact that the games got raided and basically he's trying to extort Billy and his girlfriend Marisol. And then Billy hires this rogue hitman. Is he sort of a hitman? Is he sort of a private investigator of the streets sort of guy? He's very mysterious. His name is Pitt. He hires Pitt to get him out of this situation. But he okay. sort of, it just it spirals out of control from there because he sort of deceives Pitt. Gotcha. To kind of take on his case. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we were some of the lucky few that actually watched the film because he gave us a little early access. So that was a pretty damn good, uh, yeah. summary of it. Yeah. I mean, Thank um, you. so, so now that, now that they know what the film is about, continue on with what, where the idea came from. You said you were on Geek versus Geek thug. versus Thug. Geek, I just like that concept of Geek versus Thug. And I liked, I liked the idea of just the notion that you really can't judge a book by its cover like somebody might see somebody and they might think that they're a geek you know and they might kind mm-hmm. of judge them a certain way or put them in a certain category as being a geek but maybe there's a lot more that meets the eye to that geek you know like and so that was certainly the case with billy and the trouble and I, i've known john that played billy for a long time he's not traditionally an actor although he's really forayed into acting and he's uh more of a comedian He's okay. doing stand-up comedy and a lot of improv in New York. And since doing the movie, he's done a lot more. But th- then the idea sort of started coming to me. I'm like, hey, like, you know, like I started – then I worked with Mark Marini. And he was like, hey, we should do something that's like a Western. And I'm like, I like that idea because I always liked – well, the concept of an urban Western, mm-hmm. you know, where it's not, you know, the Wild West and it's not guys on like horseback. It's – like the South Bronx, yeah. These guys on yeah. motorcycles, and yeah, that sort of thing. Is that where the idea um, for him being? I would. I'm not gonna, you know, generalize it, but him being like a kind of a card shark. Is that where the idea came from, or did you have that idea first? Because you think of westerns, you think of like the guy, you know, the 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 poker game where guys are slipping, you know, aces under from their boots oh, totally. and all that, yeah, and all that. Is that where because you want to do an urban western? Is that where the, the yeah, poker so idea that, came from? That's a good point. So I think I think it kind of organically evolved because. Since we were doing a low-budget slash no-budget feature, my production studio is based in the South Bronx, right near the Third Avenue Bridge. And it's, it's a part of the city where you never, ever see on film, but one that 
just I've naturally always walked by and just really admired certain scenic landscapes from a cinematic perspective saying like thinking, you know, I would love to shoot something here. I would just love to shoot something here. So just walking around that area inspired the idea okay. for the movie because it's it's a part of the city that you just don't really see on film hardly ever, you know, especially um, in an independent film. Like, you know, they might film like a scene for Law and Order here mm-hmm. and there for like or yeah. like a TV show or, you know, yeah. something for Power or something like that. You'll see trucks there. But there's hardly ever any independent films that I see or stories that are really centered in that area. And so to keep causes down, I knew that we had to limit our locations. In fact, that was one of uh, the stipulations for my our producer, George. He said, all right, it's like just uh, – you guys write the script, but keep the locations down. Keep them at a bare minimum. And then when he read the first draft, because naturally I just write with a lot of locations. Of course. You know? Of course. Like, and so then when he read that value. first draft, George was a little irked. He was like, guys, like, <laughs> what the hell? Like, I said, keep the locations down. He's like, he's like, we have a club scene. We have this. We have that. I'm like, don't worry, George. We'll make it work. He's like, all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one of the things I was impressed with with your project was how – Unlike the Mumblecore uh, projects, it had scope, you know, it seemed bigger, but I really liked some of the, what I think, I don't know, I, maybe they weren't, but I caught some things that were like kind of low budget, little tricks. You're wrong. That I, yeah, I know. You're wrong, Alex. So. Things like, <laughs> one of the things I noticed was you never showed the po- the online poker. Right. And I was wondering, just a question, was that because you didn't want to like have to make a, a an online poker generic graphic? Because that was a pretty clever trick, if if so, because you talked about it. I got like the visual sense of it from their descriptions, but you never actually showed it on screen. You know, that's a, that's a good point, Alex, was that that's something we discussed at length. And we actually did make a graphic that was like a very simple graphic because one of the – so there was that for sure. There was the budget. But aside from the budget, if you notice, there's not a lot of cars in the film because I wanted the film to take place not – necessarily in the past but not necessarily in the contemporary present if that makes any sense i Mm -hmm. want it to be its own self-contained world so i don't want to date itself too much by showing a lot of technology or a lot of vehicles definitely that's actually so there was that as well a great point that's one thing that to me dates projects more than anything is like looking at the computer interfaces and exactly because Everything else could be totally fine. Then all of a sudden they flip open a computer. You see a monitor and you're like, whoa, that looks weird. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, like exactly. the original Google logo. You're like, wow, wow. this movie's yeah, so strange. old. Yeah. Strange. Um, so it might be fine for a year or two, but 10 years from now it'll be like, yeah. whoa, whoa. Yeah. Okay. Uh, very good. Now it's going back to location. So I know from doing all of our no budget projects and working with many people who are trying to do their no budget projects, the biggest thing is locations because they cost a lot, yes. especially in LA and I would assume in New York, never shot there. Um, but you had some good locations. I mean, you you did the some church. really, uh, you did some really smart. Yeah, the church was the church was a great find, amazing. Oh, and the, the your cinematographer lit that thing beautifully. And if he didn't light it at all and no. just used the natural light, no, he did, killed he it. Did a good, he did a great. Job. Um, but like you had you had a liquor store. You had and you did you did some very smart things at like times when it was like you kind of like focus on the character and not the background so it was a club but it wasn't you know you couldn't see the club which is a great way to cheat that you're in a club or stuff like that but how did you go about getting your locations did you, are you just straight we paid for them or did you a, li- a little bit of both it's a it's a good question because i think for one 
I sort of tried to write thinking about which locations that I have access to. My friend Anthony Angrisani owns that liquor store in the oh, Bronx. Okay. He, he owns a wine and liquor store called La Cantina. Shout out to them. Hey, hey, Thanks, shout out. La Catina. Uh, uh, we'll shout it out for the next 15 episodes if you send us some free booze. <laughs> hey, La Catina. Ole. All right, continue. Sorry. So, but anyway, I knew that. I was like, all right, Ant will let us film over there if, if there's a scene that could take place over there. Yeah. You know? So that sort of thing. There was a place down the street. We tried to use my our, our production studios in a loft building in the South Bronx called the Clock Tower. Okay. And so we tried to center everything in or around the clock tower, you know, which it didn't exactly turn out that way. But we used that as like the home base of operations because I Sweet. knew from experience with the short films that that's just the biggest killer. Moving locations like. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. OK. I got to ask. Sure. Now the movie's locked. You know, police can't come after you. How many s- shots did you steal without permits? Because I mean, a good amount of them. Yeah, good. good all right, that's all I like yeah. to hear. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, screw yeah. the man. Oh ah. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, um, like the like the the graveyard, the the cemetery. That no, we actually that we got permission from from it, it was a cemetery. It's a really old cemetery actually. So okay. Like any of the dates are visible if somebody's watching the film. Like the dates are for, like on the tombstones are from like the eighteen nineties or from like the nineteen hundreds. Like you know, sick. And it was like apparently George Washington. With his troops marched through that area. That's I, there's awesome. a lot of history there. That is awesome. So, Let's uh, go shoot some, a horror film there. <laughs> somebody sort of hooked us up with that, and they did it for free. Awesome. You know, we're so grateful to them. Um, but we basically called in every favor that we could. But, yeah, that that ended up working out with the cemetery. Did you sneak really. around with anything else in terms oh, of yeah. locations? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. Um or did you most, cheat anything? Like, yeah, most of the stuff that you saw in the street. Do you know the shot actually where they're at the warehouse, but then they go outside for a, a minute and then they have the guns? And, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yep, yep. Without giving too much of a spoiler away, that shot was totally stolen. And that was kind of hairy because nice. you sure. know, we were like, sure. all right, we don't want the NYPD to see us with fake firearms and then, you know, <laughs> yeah, start blasting a, shots at us. Yeah, yeah, always, that's a, that's a good one. Hairy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Always yeah. hairy. And, um, you had mentioned before to us that you used a couple locations for multiple different locations within the film. Exactly. How did you go about figuring that out and making it look different? So it's a good question. We had our we had a an outstanding production designer, and her name is Clarissa Garcia Fresco. And it's amazing that she took on our project because we didn't really know her before that. And she was going to AFI at the time, I think, as part of a very prestigious program where they only select a couple of people per year. And she had a background in architecture. Oh, nice. And we had the first meeting. And it was just a sort of a chaotic day because she came in very late in the game onto pre-production. And uh, at the time, my son was there. So there was like a infant baby and like a thing my wife was there like make it work yeah and just like the studio looked like in shambles and then this woman who has a very professional background comes in and she was amazing in terms of her ideas and i just didn't think she was going to come on board but she did and she brought so much to the table and so i think we were able to utilize different spaces for instance billy and greg's apartment that is our studio Okay. So that's that's our production studio. And are those so your we, comic books? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. That, those are my collages on the wall. Oh, okay. I actually made those myself. Okay, nice. Yeah, nice. So that's my own sort of nice. artwork. Nice. Um, 
And so you used the, your studio as their apartment. As their apartment. Okay. And then we also dressed it up to use it for the poker den scene and you know, nice. whatever else we needed it for. Wouldn't have been was able it, to tell. Was it also the the angle on the bar of people at the bar? You know, because you had the darkness side where people were, were dancing and stuff like that. No, the club was actually a restaurant down the street, which has a back gotcha. room. And we oh, turned nice. that into a club. Nice. nice. So going off of what you were saying about that your uh, production designer was kind of like new, didn't, you kind of just, she was coming on the project fresh. How much of your cast and crew were people you knew and how much it was just people you brought on board that were kind of like new to the group? That's a good, really good question because I think more... I would say maybe 20 percent were people that I've worked with before, and then maybe eighty percent new people. You know, our core nice. production wow. team—that's impressive. Our core production team, like me, George, Joel, Mark Marini, uh, Sandy, who is a co-producer on it. We've all worked together before, and I'm sure there's a few other people that I'm forgetting. And uh, John Vogel is a friend of mine. He was the main actor, but then there were three other main actors that we ended up holding castings for. Oh, actually, nice. Ari, who played Pitt, I worked with him before. So maybe maybe it ends up becoming half and half. But there was a bunch of other fresh faces that I didn't work with before. We certainly held a lot of castings for the role of Enzo and for Marisol and for a lot of the other roles. How well did it flow with people that like you know? Everyone has their own inside language and all that. How was it with the people that came in that, you know, didn't really know anybody, was, was a fresh face coming into a group that was about half, half people you knew? It flowed. I would say it flowed fairly well. Obviously, there's things that I would have done differently. And there's a lot of things we were doing very DIY, like our cinematographer, Alex, when he was lighting, like we would use shower curtains as diffusion. And nice. Use, like spray painting light bulbs using Love spray it. paint from Home Depot. <laughs> nice. Us. Yeah. And things like that, which at first our our producer George Rudai, for him that was sort of jarring. He's like, he's like, why is he doing this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, because he came from a more traditional filmmaking sensibility yeah. of studying film and going to school, where Alex had all these kind of hacks and tricks. And you nice. know, we ended up shooting the film on a Black Magic Cinema camera. Okay, we rented Cook lenses. Oh, nice. So we, you know, yeah. Oh, I love me cooks. Yeah, and then Alex also had a Sigma lens, which was really nice. Nice. Yeah, cool. Nice. So and speaking it, of Alex. Yeah, I was going to ask about the uh, the approach to the cinematography. You mentioned you had a lot of hacks and stuff, but was it mostly kind of small lighting and working with what was available, or did you bring in a lot of gear and have... We had a lot... Actually, it was only a small amount of lights, but we did have uh, some, some Kino flows, some uh, tungsten lights... So he used kind of a combination of uh, kinos, bouncing them with tungstens, which I think uh, there was an older guy named Jose Martinez that was an established gaffer who was on set a couple times. He was, he was like, you guys are doing this salt and pepper thing. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah. But, but yeah, Love it. So, and then we did a lot of bounce light. And so Alex and I spent a lot of time discussing kind of uh, in pre-production you know, what's my visual aesthetic, what films that I really respond to. So showing him, you know, different things that I was really influenced by at the time that I said, hey, could you check this out? And I think he did an outstanding job really kind of capturing that. Yeah, yeah. the cinematography Excellent. was awesome. It looked great. Were there any shots that you just got and didn't light at all? And just use what was available, the available light? Uh, I'm trying to think here. Not a lot. 
because the black magic it's a good camera but it's it's definitely a light hog that yeah. camera so it's you know being a low light camera is not really the strength of the black magic definitely um so it requires a lot of light except for some outdoor scenes you know where you know we didn't have to you know there was just enough sunlight that i don't think we had to do anything there was a couple of shots you know wide shot in the church how how much light or was that post i mean the beams coming in through the windows loved it yeah there was there was a good amount of lights there i think yeah we had to bring all the lights that we had okay to that shot and alex alex did a really great job that shot i was but like, it, it is yeah. a beautiful church too once you're like there in person you're like wow there's a great find so we had to do it justice of course with the lights that you know, and that was like, just like somebody you knew that got you into the church uh george our producer ended up finding that and i think we had to pay a small fee but it was an amazing find that's awesome. that was one of the most difficult locations to yeah source that was one of the last things that we shot it was you know sort of after the initial schedule uh-huh because we weren't finding the church i found a church in the bronx on 138th street that i thought looked perfect but they weren't giving us access and then the church that george found really closely matched that church although it was in times square it wasn't in uh manhattan it wasn't in the bronx rather it was in manhattan but uh in that it just sort of looked like that kind of style of church where Marisol would attend. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I lo- that church was beautiful. You- yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> You guys did a great service to that church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even those candle scenes, the way Alex Gray, that was our cinematographer's name, Alex Gray, uh, the way he lit those candle scenes where Marisol is lighting the candles, yeah. I thought those came out fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I knew yeah. right there in person. I'm like, this is going to be amazing. Yeah, you know? and you were right. Well, let's talk about the the Western vibe. Um, we definitely got that from the movie we watched, it and we were like this very much like a like a spaghetti, like an urban Western, urban spaghetti Western. Um, exactly. Did you? What kind of techniques did you do um, aside from story and, and things like that to get that vibe um, through? So, I think we used a lot of wide angles. I purposely made the film that it's kind of like a slow burn in a way where we're not doing quick cuts. For instance, I think the music, we had an original score from these Bronx-based musicians named Andrew Marinaccio and Michael Stevens. They wrote the score for the film before the, as the film was being written, essentially. I was speaking to them, and they always wanted to do a Western. And so I always knew from day one that working with those guys, that would really bring a lot to the table in terms of the fabric of that and i think uh just the flow of the story and kind of the shot structures we tried to we tried to do it that way without trying to make it corny if, yeah if that makes any sense no without absolutely trying to, like phone it in and yeah, like, yeah. oh let's let's make it an over the top western it's it's kind of more like sub- on the subtle side of being a western yeah i mean yeah i think it was when we first heard the music and it was this the western like the the standard i don't want to say standard but the the kind of music that you hear in every western we were like oh all right and then we started picking it up a little bit i think the music did a really great job of setting up the the mood of like it's a showdown and it's it's you know good versus evil or in your case geek versus thug um the music was great yeah Yeah. and i do think for me it was the fact that you you played a lot of it in the wise, like you said, which is definitely sort of a spaghetti western move. You know, you had, and you, and there wasn't like in the scenes, um, there wasn't a lot of like fast editing or like too many cuts. You know, right? A lot of those films, uh, they definitely played a lot in sort of like 
single takes or like they did longer takes exactly. and stuff like that, which I thought was really cool that you did that. Thank there was you. no other wow wow, <laughs> <laughs> which would have been too much. Right, like, it would have been too much. It would have been too much. It would have been like ah. Although we did throw in the Bronx tumbleweed, what I call the Bronx tumbleweed, <laughs> where we have a garbage bag. you see that a couple times. Well played. Um, well played. And one thing that was definitely a very conscious decision that I did was. Although the film takes place in an urban setting, which is the South Bronx, I very much try to portray it feeling like a small town, if that makes any sense. Yeah, because it kind of seemed like everyone knew each other. It was like kind of like, that this is my neighborhood thing. kind of thing. And the, the exact shots that I got, we basically, the lo- locations, we tried to film in places where there weren't too many cars. And we tried to film in places sometimes where it was kind of desolate looking, because that's traditionally how that neighborhood and the most southern tip of the Bronx looks like. So I just always thought that was kind of cool. And, you know, oh, there's some sprawling locations. And yeah. You'd have a mural with graffiti on it, but it just always felt very cinematic to me. Or sometimes you're walking in that neighborhood, you'll see like a, just like a gang of kids driving by on dirt bikes. You know, they have like motorized dirt bikes and just like there's like 50 or 100 of them. And you're like, man, Jeez. that's like really cool looking. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's scary if you're in the middle of them, but it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> Although they're yeah. harmless. I, I got to know some of those guys. They're, they're just like riding dirt bikes, really. What did yeah. you use for the Carolina at the end when he sent the postcard? <laughs> Good question. We used upstate New York. Ah, nice. Shout out to my Aunt Vera who let us film Shout out to Aunt Vera. Yep. What up, Aunt Vera? <laughs> yeah, she's the best. And so that was her house in Hope L Junction, New York. And um, I always thought, I'm like, man, if there's a place that could look like Carolina, it's that house upstate, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. So all those places that I knew, and I think that's important for any independent filmmakers doing stuff on a low or no budget, you know, just all these things that you have access to, keep them in your back pocket, you know, put them in the binder, whatever, you know, just write for those things. You know, yeah, write, no, absolutely. Right in a way where you could utilize what you have resources for. Definitely. I mean, that, yeah, we, we keep pushing that because we, we run into filmmakers who are doing their first feature or a no budget feature a lot, and they're like, well, I want, you know, this expansive space and I want this. It's like, well, how much budget do you have for your location? Nothing. It's like, oh, well, maybe you should change your script a little bit because you have, you know, not we, just locations, but like props and yeah. cars and. Yeah. You know, whatever. The, one of the features that we produced, it was written around the fact that our friend, had, his girlfriend, now wife, had her family had a cabin in Tahoe. So it was like it was like a it, it started as a no like a one location kind of place, and then then the story evolved to more multiple locations. But most of it took place in that cabin because it was free, and it's like you can't exactly. That's the move. Can't put a price on free. That yeah. sounds yeah. really stupid. But yeah. Speaking of, speaking of, we didn't we didn't go over what the budget was. Do you mind? Oh no, you no, can say no, under no. anything. You don't have to give it the exact. No, budget. sure, sure. I'll be happy to talk about it. Um, so I mentioned to you guys over email that when we started shooting it, we had twelve thousand twelve thousand five hundred dollars. But that's not really accurate toward the but going toward the budget because it really sort of blew up to closer to about fifty grand over okay. time. You yeah. know, and I mean over yeah. a three like three year span, and yeah. this it, it kind of ties into my philosophy about, which is still nothing for a feature film. Yeah, Definitely. no, absolutely. Yep. You know, and then that's not even counting the, you know, the sweat equity yeah. of just yeah. like yep. what I call McDonald's hours. 
how much would I get? How much would, if I was working at McDonald's? How much would I get paid working on this film? And that's hundreds and hundreds of hours. Even if working at minimum wage, that would add up. Yeah, you know, and then just Absolutely. everybody who called in a favor. But yeah, I would say between like forty and fifty ish in terms of actual resources that we put into the film. Yeah, and I think that's pretty common actually for you to start out with, you know, a certain budget and get going a little bit higher. And that happened with our project as well. I think mm-hmm. some things popped up that we weren't expecting, you know, yeah, those exactly. little, little That's what things. happened to us. So yeah. there was, there was some, a couple of people that said they were going to put a lot more money into it that didn't put the money into it. And then it turns out there were people that said they were going to put in less that put in more because they nice. started believing the project. So, so it all worked out in the end, but I, I do think it's really important to sort of get it going and build that momentum. Cause once you do that, then it could sort of build the excitement for people oh, to kind of absolutely, you know, so, yeah, you know, pour their resources into it, or you know, even volunteer on it, or whatever it is to help you get the film made. But once the train is going, it's easier for it to sort of uh, get finished. Absolutely. And how long was that train going? How what was your production like schedule oh, like? So at first, we basically had uh, a seventeen day schedule so it's like more a little bit more than two weeks of almost continuous shooting although we stopped because of a couple of emergencies that happened um particularly with our cinematographer he had a an emergency that happened which shut us down for two days and it, that was maybe five days into the shoot and we weren't anticipating that and it was a bad situation in the moment because we had everything really tightly scheduled Although I will say about those kind of bad situations, and I think they're going to happen almost on any set, especially on a yeah. no budget. Yeah, even if you film. get to a hundred million, there's oh yeah, that stuff even, happens all even the time. On a big budget yeah. film. So I think it's important for any filmmaker to use those those negative things and try to try to find a positive. So when we shut down for two days, it was really bad, but I didn't let it ruin the movie. In fact, we used those two days to prepare more for things that you know maybe we were sort of underprepared for. So we just used those couple of days to like really hustle and, you know, dress the setup for the poker den sequence nice. and, you know, get the warehouse ready for that final card game sequence that mm-hmm. we we're going to shoot. And so I think we used those, those negative things that happen and try to try to come out with a positive. And then, so, so then there was that, those initial 17 days. And then there was maybe another 10 days of pickup shots throughout the duration of uh, a year and a half. So I would say like principal photography was really that initial stretch. And then our last shot was like a year and a half later, which yeah. is a decent amount of time. Yeah. But it kind of ties into my philosophy, which I think, you know, a bunch of people say in film that you can't do something fast, cheap and good. Oh yeah. And oh, really, that's our, that's our, that's, that's what we Trevor's tell go-to. everyone. We work with. That's glad, my go-to. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that is your go-to because yeah. that's definitely my go-to, you know? So I knew that we wanted to do something good. Of course, we're doing it cheap because we didn't have the proper budget. So I knew by nature we couldn't rush it. I just knew that we just couldn't rush this thing because yep. it would be, um, really catastrophic for the picture if we rushed it. So we ended up taking our time. Nice. And what was the the post process like? Did you work with an editor? I did. Um, I worked with an editor named Christina Nicolai. Uh, shout out to Christina because she did an amazing, amazing job. What and up, Christina? Christina basically started off as an intern for us at Alphabet City Films, and she had a little bit of an editing background. And 
she had definitely never edited a feature, but I really trusted Christina. I said, you know, and I, I knew that she would do a great job and she did. And I told her, you know, I kind of instructed her, Hey, first cut for performance. You know, when mm-hmm. you're going through the shots, when you're going through the sequences, first cut for performance. It's our, our film is sort of complicated because it jumbles around in time. Yeah, and so it goes in multiple stories. There's four s- separate characters, and it jumbles around in time. So there's almost like four stories from different perspectives. So it's kind of ambitious in that sort of regard because you know it's it's way easier, especially from an editing standpoint, to tell a linear story. That, yeah, you know, has yeah. a beginning and has Definitely. an end, and it doesn't jump around in time. But Christina did a great job, and then I kind of jumped in at a certain point like she basically made a cut that was pretty solid and then i sat and worked with the film for another period of time and i had an assistant editor named jason malizia and so i worked on it really closely um and jason helped out a lot too and it's always good to have another eye i feel like oh yeah so oh yeah first definitely time christina crucial yeah because yeah. you get so after oh. just watching the whole thing over and over again and seeing scenes over and over, you just Everything. you just lose total yes like you have no clue what it's, what it's even because <laughs> you know going where it's gonna anymore. go so you're like oh that's <laughs> yeah. fine and, and other people are like wait what and, and what we did what I, I don't know if anybody else has ever done this but i made a bind because we weren't a hundred percent sure because things were changing around and things were getting jumbled in time. So we weren't, we couldn't really give every scene a number. So what I decided to do at a certain point was give each scene a four letter random word. I used like a four letter word generator made like a, a binder with like a still from every scene. And we gave it like a random four letter, what we called like an alpha numeric or whatever. It's just really a, a random word. Okay. You know, could be like bird. This uh-huh. scene is bird. It has nothing to do with the scene, but uh-huh. just so we could not feel like we were tied to any numbers, we could look that's at that binder and then shuffle things around, take things out, you know, and nice. then that's cool. not be bound by that. That's a really cool idea. So, what is next? Now you said you're premiering in Vegas. Uh, are you looking at distribution? Are you? Oh looking yeah. At- so yeah, next is really we're looking at distribution. Um, personally, I just want as many eyeballs on this film as possible. So you know. And we're not really looking to get rich from this film. It would be really nice to make our money back. Yeah. But I would just like as wide of an audience as possible, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. And so are you going, are you doing the festival route? Are you doing the. To some extent, yes. I mean, we're we're premiering our film next month at Action on Film. So if anybody's out in Vegas, we'd love to have you guys there at the premiere of the film. Sweet. Um,. It's going to screen in a crisp 5.1 surround mix. Ooh. Nice. Yeah. DCP. Ooh. That's nice. Where, uh, do you know where it's at? Is it the Brendan Theater? Yep, at the Brendan Theater. Nice. Alex very grew cool. up in Vegas. Oh, know. did you? Oh, cool. I did, yes. Is it a good theater? It is. It's very nice. nice. Yeah. Excellent. It's probably one of the best in Vegas. Oh, oh yeah. nice. awesome. There you go. All right. Killing. I'm, I'm so even more excited. So, so you, I mean, are you, we just talked to, we interviewed on Tuesday, um, Jason Brubeck from Distriber. And, you know, he's talking about how all these people come in and they're like, oh, I want, you know, I want Netflix is my goal. I, I know you said you want as many eyes on it, but what is your ultimate, what would be, what would make you happy? If it, like the I worst would, case scenario. Sure, like, I'd, be, I'd be thrilled with Netflix or even Amazon Prime. I think they're, they're doing a lot these days. Um, that would be amazing. Uh, I mean, gonna, are you going to look for a, like a sales agent? 
type of thing to take it out to like AFM and and Ken and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's that's something we're definitely discussing right now with George. So, right on. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. So, let's talk about lessons learned. What was oh, like yes. the biggest It's time to give oh, advice sure. to everyone Absolutely. out there. Yeah, give give your yeah. your words of wisdom if you yeah. have any. We don't, what but were, other people do. What are of the biggest lessons you learned along the way that you that kind of stick out it, to you right yeah. now? It's sort of funny looking back because on our first day of shoot, we shot the cemetery scene. And in the middle of the day, it was piping hot. There were lawnmowers going off in the background. Yeah, It's a complicated scene because it's one of the most pivotal scenes in the film, really. And you see it two different times from different perspectives of the movie. Yeah. You know, it's where Billy has to make his case to Pitt for Mm -hmm. Pitt to help him out. Yep. And that's where the movie pivots. And that was the one of the earliest shots that I imagined. I drew a crude storyboard of a guy sitting on a, like, laying by a tombstone. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of the tombstone the other guy has his back to that tombstone. So that was one of the first visuals that I had of the film. Yeah. And, but to, to do that the first day, Oof. looking back, I'm like, what were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> like that was way too ambitious. It, it turned out terribly. We actually had to redo that. Really? Yeah. Because the sound was a nightmare. The light wasn't consistent. So we'd film with Billy. And then five minutes later, the sun was in a different spot. Yep. You yep. know, and yep. then we thought, well, like, hey, this scene should take place at night. But you actually see it in the movie. Oh, so the original script didn't have it at night. Because in the, the, the final script, cut, it's at night. Right, right. Ah, and that's why Billy comes in during the day. When he walks to the cemetery, it's during the day. Oh. But he's there for a few hours. And then we did yeah. a time lapse. And nice. Like, I didn't even, know, yeah. It, then it became part of the story where you yeah. know, he hung out in the cemetery for a few hours. Because, you know. That's a good tip right there. Yeah. I like that. Okay. So okay. I, th- I think that is important to really consider... Um, the order of operations on things. I wouldn't go that bold on on the next movie as far as a scene that has that heavy of performances and that it's that ambitious. That's one thing, of course. Gotcha. Um, and and then there's there's definitely a bunch of things that I think I would do. I think I would spend even more time in pre production because the way this movie came together was incredibly fast. It was almost miraculously fast. Okay, I think. In March or in April, in March it was an idea. By April it was a script. By July 1st we were shooting the movie. Wow. That is fast. Yeah. But that was 2015. Yeah. So that was three years ago at this point. So Mm -hmm. then it became a bunch of time of working on it to really kind of, you know, make sure that it, I don't want to say perfect, but make sure that it's in a place where we're happy. Because I think a film is never perfect. I heard a quote, I forget who said it, but... A filmmaker is never done with his movie. There's just a point where you just stop working on it. Yes. Yeah, it's yes. Uh, funny. We um, we went to USC and <laughs> and uh, they always have Steven Spielberg come in for a class. They teach a class on Spielberg. Um, and our friend asked Spielberg, he's like, when are you done with him? Like, are you ever happy with a movie? He's like, I'm never happy with a movie. I'm just satisfied when I can watch it on the big screen and not cringe and like not look away or like that's that. A, so yeah, you, you exactly never, you're never happy. You're never never think a movie's perfect but you can deal with it yeah and so i mean on our on our first cut by the way we were cringing we were like oh uh, me and christina turned to each other well we were like we tried to make a movie (laughs) and then and then at first so that was really discouraging and then i heard martin scorsese say that on a master class he was like if you don't watch your first cut if he's like if you don't get physically sick watching your first cut of the movie something is wrong 
And yeah. so then nice. I'm like, all right. So even the masters are saying that. So. And then you just sat there and was like, I am Martin Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, it. guys. Not at all. <laughs> Nailed it. Except, except at Colin least I felt like, okay. You know, I heard even Coppola when he first watched The Godfather with his editor. He was like, what do you think? He was like, well, we tried to make a gangster movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that, that's good advice because, you know, so many people when they – they're doing a no budget. They'll shoot their film. They'll put as much money as they can into it, but it's not. It's never enough. Um, and then they'll sit down and they'll edit it and they'll be like, "Well, we screwed up in the we we screwed up in production. Like we screwed up blah blah blah." But if you just step back and then t- retool the edit, you can pull a story out of it a lot a lot easier than people think because they always think like, "Well, this was only twenty five thousand. If I had fifty thousand, I would have made it much better." It's like, no, no, just you you got the coverage, you got the story, just gotta. Not be so. Don't be I guess, hasty. Yeah, exactly. And don't yeah. be so married to the origi- the first edit. Right. Like, be, exactly. Be afraid yes. to. Do you know what? I'm gonna edit it a little differently this time. Oh, totally, totally. I agree. Um, I think one one of the things that we did really did right was pay attention to the sound. Our sound guy, Nick Doe, he did a great job, but he was the highest paid guy on set. We didn't know Nick. You know, but I support this so much. (laughs) If you guys listen to this podcast, you know what we say about sound. Do not skimp on the sound. Yeah, we put a lot of money too in the sound design. We had a guy named Julian Evans. He's outstanding. That he has a studio in Brooklyn, and we sprung for the five point one mix. But I spent a lot of time with Julian, kind of working on the sound design. He brought a lot to the table as well, and so that was a very conscious decision. We're like, man, people on their first film or on no budget films, they really don't pay attention to the sound and it, yeah. it comes back to bite them. Later oh, on. so Hugh, bad. Hugely. I, I used to work in acquisitions at a uh, international sales agency and distribution company. And the first thing, <laughs> the first thing that we noticed when watching the movies was the sound. I mean, as soon as the sound, you realize the sound's not good. You just turn it off. Yeah. Completely. You just tune out. And surprisingly, there were a lot of them. So just having good sound yeah. puts you above so many other films out there that are trying to you know compete and get distribution and stuff. So I mean, it's just it makes so much sense to just you know pay whatever you got to pay to make it happen because yeah. it's so important to the film. You know. So that was something that I think we did right. It's so um, funny that you like we we harp on sound so much because we're not sound guys and sound guys are so important and it's like no matter how much money you put in you still show up at a location and there's somebody doing a lawnmower in the background it's oh like, yeah come on yeah. <laughs> we did a we did a, a, a sixty thousand dollars short out of college we were working on that and it was like we shot at this cemetery it was actually just down the street a little bit from here and it was like you know they got the permits we're all good and it's like every five minutes it's like hold for plane and this giant plane will flow over and it's like sometimes you just can't control it but the things you can control you should definitely put up the money for that and and speaking of money i want to ask you so you said it was about fifty thousand all said and done right how much of that was production and how much because you said you sat down did a 5.1 mix how much of the money was production and then a little post-production because when you bring in professionals which you should if you can afford it especially doing a 5.1 mix or a sound engineer how much would you think like percentage wise was like production and then post-production i would say a little bit more was production maybe it's almost honestly it's about half and half okay yeah half and half came out to be that's that's well worth it once you hear the sound. The sound, 
And I think the first thing, like Alex said, the first thing that takes you out of a movie, especially when it's a low-budget feature, is if it sounds just bad. Like on-camera audio or the Foley mix is bad or like there's just – it's not – the levels are bad and then you're done. And like first five minutes, I'm like – true. And I guess I'm also including some of the reshoots because in earlier short films, I've always been against doing reshoots. Like I never liked the idea of doing reshoots. I mean who does really? You don't want to have to go back and feel like what you did before was wasted. Yeah. But I think I've changed my mentality a lot because it really matters what the outcome is, you know. So that's the most important thing. So I think when I first started filmmaking, I was all excited about the process and, you know, being on set. And, you know, I thought this is amazing. But being on set, those things are great. But it's it's not the end all be all. The end all be all is the outcome of the film that you're trying to make. So I think I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah. One one thing that I would do differently thinking about it, though, is. Aside from spending more time in pre-production and aside from considering – I would consider production design at an earlier stage even because we brought in Clarissa and she was amazing. But I would – on my next feature, I think I'm going to think about production design way earlier, even on a script level almost. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean That's, the, the earlier you can get on everything, the better. Every, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And also um, – I would take more time. I wouldn't rush on certain scenes. You know, I would give myself more time, do more takes, you know, just kind of let things. That's the delicate balance though, because when you are so strapped for cash and time, it's like, I know, can I do this pivotal scene 20 times or do I push this other scene? For this this shot? That that is the tough balance. That's why I don't know. I don't know if I could do a film this low budget for the next one. I think I'd have to bring up the budget at least, you know, just to, like maybe not to spend more on equipment or crew or cast, but just to spread out the production a little bit. Yeah. Like give a give a pivotal scene a whole day to shoot rather exactly. than having to run and gun. And that's the that's what we're all working for is to get that that flexibility of being like you know what scene this scene in this moment I'm going to take the whole day set it up talk to the actors get it perfect you know take the ten hour shoot day and just do this one scene because it's so important. Right. That's that's what we all strive for. If it only was that easy. Yeah. If only yeah, if it was only. that easy. My wife did all the catering and my mother-in-law. So shout out to them. One thing nice. that we do at Alphabet City Films is we always feed our casting crew. Super, yeah. very, very, super crucial. Very Your wife's name is? Anila. Anila, uh, shout out to you. If you want to send us free food, um, you know, go right ahead. Um, uh, Zeph's friend is going to send us booze as well. Um, so we're just going to get a bunch of free stuff. We're, we're not ashamed of it at all. So please, just, you <laughs> now know. Now I find uh, out the real reason I'm on here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just so we get fed and drunk on other people's dimes. That's what we're hoping. Yeah. Um, well, I actually have some stories about that too, like horror stories, the opposite, where, where the production wasn't... Oh. You know, focused on the food and like feeding people and providing people with the drinks and it was it was actually my fault because I was a young producer at the time and I just didn't know. Yeah, you were never young. You're right. I came, <laughs> I came out with 32. a full full beard. <laughs> um, but man, it really does make a huge difference when the crew's happy and you know not thinking about when they're going to be eating next because they're starving and uh, you know. There's so many Absolutely. little things. Yeah, yeah. I've heard horror stories where actors have told me they're like oh this is so great that you feed us because i've been on <laughs> set where you're working like a 16 hour day and they just give you a couple slices of pizza and that's it i'm like whoa Oof. yeah that's i mean pretty rough that's a it, it 
it pays off in ways people don't realize that if you put some money into the catering or have someone like your wife being able to cater yeah. for the production, it's like it just makes everyone happier. And just, and then you can do the whole like, hey, guys, you know, I know it's a 10-hour work team. Can you stay an extra hour? Like, you know, we just hey, can we just stay an extra hour to get the scene? It just works so much easier. Yeah. I mean, it's important to consider because essentially when you're – I'm not really credited as a producer on the film because I'm not one of these people that – wants to take a credit for this and a credit for that but essentially i definitely you on a no budget film you have to be a producer yeah. when you're directing you yes. can't just it's a fantasy if you think you're just going to show up on set <laughs> and just everything is going to be laid <laughs> yeah. out and oh. sh- shout out to george george and joel they did so much and the whole yeah. production team sandy and everybody but shout out to you george if you want to send us anything free awesome <laughs> come on <laughs> i gotta stop that all right all right um no but, i mean yeah but so i you know from that side of filmmaking, I think you know what you're doing is events planning. If you think about it, it's like you, yeah. it's like you are planning out an event 17 days in a row. That's a great. That's, that's a great yeah, analogy. Definitely. Yeah, and that you need true. food at that event. People yeah. need to be fed. Yeah, that is. I true. mean, I I completely agree with that. If you don't take care of your cast and crew, you're going to get a revolt, and oh, yeah. people are not going to show sure. up with the best intentions. And that's one thing I've noticed. I'm just kind of witnessing and being a fly on a wall on big budget films where I notice that even if it's a TV, if they're shooting a TV show in New York or whatever, it's a union shoot, they just have an abundance of food and that's for a reason. You know, if like the people get hungry, there's something to eat at, you know, at any moment. Yep. Costco's great. Just give me a pack of muffins. (laughs) Costco me some muffins. Yeah. That's kind of a, a joke too. It's just like, there's always muffins and bagels at the crafty. Yep, and and gummy candies and goldfish and gum. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's all you need. Yep. Nope, not really. Um, all right. So if you had a a brand new filmmaker right in front of you who is about to embark on his very first feature film, I'll say it. It's Alex. He's a it's brand me. New fi- it's a brand new filmmaker. Um, He's a no. brand new filmmaker. <laughs> yes. Um, and <laughs> they asked you for one piece of advice on financing. Ooh, that is a tough question. Yeah, that's always. I know. Trump's him. Got him. Got him. And I think for those of us that are creative, you know, that's not the thing that gets us going. It's you know? not. Definitely nope. not. No, nope. taking a career in on Mm-mm. Wall Street, but yep. we chose nope. to become filmmakers, knowing yep. that that's not the path to riches. But what I would say is, write for your budget. I think each script dictates its own budget. Don't write this epic sci-fi movie thinking that you could do that on a shoestring budget or don't take out one of your scripts that you wrote on spec thinking that that could be your low budget film really truly consider your budget before the story is even developed and try to use the resources that you have at your disposal um be willing to put your own resources into it then i think you're more likely to get other people to really believe in your project once you are so serious about it happening and it has to really happen you know i think there's a lot of people that you know they're trying to get something going and it doesn't quite get going but i think if people see that it's there's like a definite start date i i think things are way more likely to happen and people are way more likely to to invest uh, money into your film yeah that's a great point that's a good point yeah i do think a lot of people have the floating date it's like well whenever we get it all the money is when we're going to start. But right. I think that leaves a lot of people feeling concerned. That, yeah. yeah. You know? like, what's going to happen to my money if you don't get all the money? Yeah. Uh, maybe I won't give until you get all the money and then I'll give a little bit. 
Yeah. I yeah. think that that's probably the thing that made it happen that I said I was extremely decisive about we we're going to film this movie in July, you know. That's a good that's a good call. Once you have a set date, people are like, "Oh, this is really happening." So I should if I if I'm if I'm on board, I should be on board now. Right. All right. Great, great advice. I think I think that'll do it. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, it was worth the wait for everyone out there. We finally got Zeph here. Thank you, finally guys. Got him. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us in the studio as our very first in studio guest. Hey, yeah. keep up the great work, fellas. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank so you much, much, and good luck at the uh, at the premiere in Vegas. Thank uh, you. Survive. Uh, come back yeah. to us. <laughs> right, check out the trouble. Can I give it a shout? Oh, out? absolutely. Oh, give, yeah. it a shout w- out. give it a shout. Give w- it a shout. W troublefilm.com. All no right. no Is hyphens, there, no underscores. Troublefilm.com. Well, thanks, Zeph, uh, for all the time. For um, you know, I'm going to say it for flying specifically out from New York for this podcast because that was so nice of you. So nice, so nice, and you know, we feel very honored. But uh, it's kind of expected now. Yeah. Um, so okay, Alex, time to get into the what's cool. Tell everyone about what we think is awesome in the world of filmmaking gear because we're gearheads. What do you got? Well. Um the first thing I found was Assimilate Scratches Play Pro, which... Love, hate with this. Yeah. It allows ProRes encoding on Windows. What? Which the has Holy Grail for been the time. an issue for quite some time. Yep. Because Apple has um, made it nearly impossible. Yeah. They really just hold on to that thing. Like, it's... Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's like... Okay, finally. I, I wonder what Assimilate had to pay for that. For I know. that license, um, I like that idea, but again, I just my, still wonder how how viable ProRes is going to be in like the next coming years. Well, they I've, just did ProRes Raw; they're introducing ProRes Raw. That's true. I just feel like they keep sort of tiptoeing in and then backing out with stuff. You I know. know. I, I I can't trust Apple on the video sense because for a while they're going to discontinue Final Cut. Now they brought back Final Cut and all this stuff. Um, I also just don't like that. It's another step in transcoding. You know, this might be our, ho oh, oh, ho oh, ho, spoiled by riches. You know, we have a couple Macs here. They're not the fastest Macs. And so if we're able to, you know, open in Premiere, edit, bring it over to the Mac, and export directly out, out into ProRes, boom, baby, love it. Um, yeah, and, but if we have to do it on Windows, you have to export out into one format and then bring it into Assimilate and export it out in Premiere Pro. And, you know, it, not that it's that much of a difference, but... As you start encoding over and over again, you lose some quality. Yeah. Plus, I th- I feel like, um, you know, assuming everything is working properly, the time it takes to um, export out something for mm-hmm. for Scratch yeah. will be much greater than the time to open a Premiere file in on a Mac. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you have some network drives, so you don't have to like, yeah, so transfer if, drives. If you or, the, uh, or you just put it on a hard drive. But yeah. Yeah. I would say that it's probably, you know, if... Somebody could only afford one computer. This is a nice option to get a, a PC that they can build and is very powerful and still do ProRes, which is kind of like for some reason everyone's still up in the ass about ProRes. Only speci- only certain people, though. I feel like it's kind of dying down. Like I said, I think... Um, I don't know, man. That infomercial that uh, we shot and I edited, they the 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 uh, broadcast company, the company that was that was responsible for distributing distributing it out for to all the like regional networks, ProRes. For, that's for broadcast. Yeah, but I, I mean, even in distribution, when they had deliverables, they asked for ProRes, but I feel like it was just a suggestion because that's what they thought they needed, but there's many other options, so I feel like they would take. Yeah, it's tough because this company was like, we need it ProRes, and you know they've been doing it for a long time, but you know, 
That's uh, true. At the same time, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, so that's an option now, which is kind of cool, I guess, yep. to have it as an option. Yep. Because it has never been an option. Yeah. Um, um, so what else I saw that was cool? We talked to the, um, I don't know if it was last podcast or the podcast before about that, external GPU right. of... Um, Black magic. Black magic. Now I failed to let everyone know because um, dumb that um, it was only for Apple. It was only yeah. for Macs. Um, it's like Apple and Black Magic so teamed up yeah. to make it. It's kind of like our uh, Codex and our uh, yeah, our, our and Veracam. Our Veracam and that's, they're just in bed together and in, you can't rip them apart. Uh, yeah, I'll get in there. Yeah. I have a way of breaking things apart. But uh, no, it's called the uh, Exclim EX Core eGPU. And what it is is... In That's a, a different thing than yes, the Blackmagic. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what's cool is... So the Blackmagic thing was only for for Macs. So uh, there's a Kickstarter now. Um, or is it Indiegogo? Indiegogo. It's an Indiegogo. It's the Exclim EX Core eGPU. And it's an external uh, graphics card. Yeah. Um, it's probably and not as crazy no, as the No, because it's pocket Black size. Magic one. It's yeah. pocket size. The, the Black Magic one is about the size. It, was, it looked from the renderings bigger than a Mac trash can, yeah, which is did. crazy. Um, but this thing is pocket sized. It's uh, a GeForce GTX uh, 1050, 5 gigabytes of RAM, 640 CUDA cores, um, and it's USB C. Um, and for all those computer nerds out there like me, they're getting close to having peripherals um, be the same speed as internal cards. Um, so soon enough, I don't know if you know they they can say it with USB C, but at the next version of USB is going to be as fast as if you had installed a hard drive or a card directly into your computer. And so that's like the holy grail because then that means you can have everything external and just add on as you want. So this little card. Basically, just gives you some uh, graphic power to you know render and do some VFX and that kind of stuff. Yeah. If you can't install a better card in your like laptop or something like that, which I think is pretty cool. I mean, oh, yeah. I I do a lot on my laptop, and my laptop has like an okay graphics card as yeah. far as like laptops graphics go. Mm-hmm. But having another one, if you can <sighs> lose them, if you can cross crash fire them or something like that, yeah, 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 yeah. that'd be pretty bomb. Oh man. Yeah, that would be amazing. So yeah, it's it's it's, in, it's only uh, what three ninety nine uh, through the Indiegogo yeah, so. the pre order. It's like the early bird right now. That's not bad. That's that's the cost of some graphics cards. So that's not bad. Not bad. Something to to keep an eye out on. See what uh, what they do with it and look at the renders and the 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 video footage that it can produce. But that's pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like they're advertising it mostly right now for gaming and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but hey, you know. Yeah, I mean they should definitely. Start moving that also into rendering if they really want to blow it up. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right, what else we got? We got the Lupo Super Panel, Ooh. which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, we yeah. talked about some Lupo lights earlier in the podcast, but mm-hmm. these are some different ones that they just announced, I believe, that are called the Super Panel, and they are Sky Panel competitors. And they are a fraction of the cost. I think one-third of the cost of Sky Panels, if I'm not mistaken. That's crazy. Maybe more... Even more so than you know, and that's the thing. When, once you get into the like a third of the cost, I can deal with not having all the bells and whistles that like a sky panel has. Yeah, and it has a lot of bells and whistles. It it does yeah. it does the um, full hue control. Mm-hmm. It does um, the saturation, green, magenta. It does um, gels. It does some effects. You nice, know, like strobes and police lights and stuff like that. 
Uh, but the one thing I read is that it doesn't really have the same build quality. Mm. For those of you who have used sky panels, you know you could probably like toss those off a Dude, boat. Dude, I could run over those things with a car, and the car would probably have more damage than the sky panels. I think so. But the thing about sky panels is they are beefy heavy, like super big. And I think the Lupos are, again, a fraction of the weight. Yeah. So, Dang. I mean, I'm all about that. I think, you know, when you're... When you're dealing with sky panels and like the the big tank lights, I mean those are excellent, especially <sighs> if you're like yeah using them all the time or you're renting them out a lot and they could get a lot of wear and tear. But if mm-hmm. it's like an owner operator situation and you're using it yourself, I mean why you don't need it to be built like a tank no. and also it could hurt you that it's just so heavy and you don't even want to like take it out with you because it is so huge. Especially you know? mounted in a uh, in a uh, a studio. Do you know if it has DMX control? Um, I believe so. Oh well, that's even yeah. better. You can hang those things up, those bad boys up, and just control them with the DMX board, and there you go. That's awesome. Yeah, and it uses the same accessories as their other lights, so they have like soft boxes and grids and stuff for it. All right, Kinda all cool. right, not bad, not bad. Uh, so I also, you know, we we harp on the sound people here, but you know what? Every once in a while, you got to do your own sound. Um, it just is inevitable, especially if you're doing small gigs. So Rode actually. Um, introduced this SC6-L mobile interview kit. And it's this little breakout box that plugs into you the uh, the lightning port of your iPhone. And it has inputs for two of Rode's uh, pro-grade uh, lavaliers. And so nice. basically, it just gives you a little recorder on set or on an interview that connects directly. It's not even a recorder. It's just a breakout box that connects to your phone and uses your phone as, a, as an uh, recorder for two lavalier inputs, so you can kind of just you know what, do your thing, have a have a sweet lavalier sound, and record on set and record on location. That's kind of cool. I know um, those they've had like kind of phone lobs for a while that you just plug straight in mm-hmm. to the phone. Yeah, um, and those are kind of cool. I mean, kind of limited depending on what the scenario is, but if you're able to. Use it more like, make your phone more like a real recorder. Yeah. And run multiple mics into it even. Yeah, that's I think that's cool. the big thing. I mean, the fact that um, it is like, you know, there's things out there that let you do one lavalier, but the fact that this allows two, so yeah. you can have two, like a guest and a host, that's pretty sweet. That is cool. But how long is the cable scenario? Because well, the you have ca- this like phone floating in between you guys like like that's, a like a suspension bridge that's true but don't quote me on this they are one eighth jacks you could probably get another one eighth jack extender that's true yeah so that, not not bad what else you got what else you got give all me right. something all right well i think hp just announced some new z workstations oh man uh, they're more affordable kind of smaller than the usual oh you know they're um they're kind of i think aimed at not like the super pro ones that are like ten grand for the for a workstation, you know. I think they started. I want to say they started like five hundred dollars. Jeez, you know that's I mean? not bad. Which I'm all about personally because I we use the ZBook yep. um, laptop mobile workstations. I love it. I love it. I think I I can edit 4K on my laptop, which is phenomenal. Yeah, and so now they have the Z2 Mini G4, which is like you know kind of like those tiny little almost puck like uh pcs you know what i'm saying like a mini pc yeah yeah, yeah. so it's like they have one of those okay which is um kind of cool and it has like an nvidia quadro p1000 which isn't you know the greatest thing out there but yeah i mean for a little mini 
PC. It's not not bad. Not bad. I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at this. The G4 workstation. Z2 small form factor. Z2 tower. I got all sorts of stuff. And uh, yeah, it looks like they just uh, launched them as of July 2018. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, these aren't expensive. These aren't your top of the line. Top of the line. These are like oh, seven hundred fifty dollars. I was wrong. Yeah, seven hundred, eight hundred dollars. Yeah, these are these are like their like entry workstations. So they have there there's some Z there's some Z's that are like ridiculous. Oh yeah. There's a you know like you you, can, I'm sure you can spec these out even higher because that's kind of how they work. You know, you go yeah. in there and you're like, okay, I'm gonna get this little mini thing, and then I'm gonna boost up the the uh the ram and the the graphics and add like a bigger hard drive or whatever yeah. and you know you can do all that kind of stuff yeah but i mean entry level workstation i mean if it's a render beast to hook that up to a network and just have that rent do your renders you don't even need to edit on it that's that works for me yeah not I'll bad i'll take that okay and then there's also finally the sony virtual production service which is kind of like how would you describe it it's like a cloud-based um uh, switching like live switching yeah. production service which it's interesting. They they claim that if you have a a camera with Wi-Fi capabilities, mm-hmm. you or, can connect yeah. to it. And Sony sells a lot of um, like Wi-Fi dongles that you can add to your camera. So if it doesn't come built in, you can actually buy separate ones that just allow you to add Wi-Fi to any camera. Yeah, or any camera that has 4G at least. Yeah. Um, and I think it can handle up to six cameras simultaneously and you can create like a whole live production, you know, live switch. That's awesome. Stream it to Facebook, YouTube live or your website or whatever. Um, and it is, I mean, it's not cheap. I will say that. I think they said about four hours of live broadcasting a month is about $350. Correct. And seven is about 820. Correct. So it's not cheap, but if you're doing an event, you know, like one event that is, Three hours a month, and you are getting fifteen hundred dollars. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. I, I think it's, probably, it's better than buying a whole Tricaster oh, system or, or, an, or whatever. Black or Magic like a, ATM, and then um, yeah, heart. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny that we should talk about it in another podcast. We had talked to the uh, owner of uh, Film and TV Pro um, about the rise of five G. Right. How that's going to revolutionize everything, and this kind of seems like the step between five G and where we are now. This Sony. Yeah, I feel like five G is going to take it to a whole different level. Probably. Five G is going to change this all around, um, and we'll talk about that in a later podcast because that is that's some whole cool other stuff. topic. That's a whole topic we do a whole podcast on because that is that's going to change the world of TV and live events. Uh, trust me. Yep. Um, but yeah, so that that'll do it for what's cool. Anything I else? Think that's pretty much it. That's, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. There's a lot of cool stuff out right now, it turns yeah, that's out. Yeah, six things that we found that were cool. Yeah. Man, and we're not one of them. Nope. Nope, never have been. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for joining us, Zeph, and thank you all for listening. Remember, you can get the show notes for this episode by visiting nobudgetfilmmaking.com slash episode 16. Already 16. That's just shocking. That is shocking. we got probably at least four more in us before we just bomb out. And we're almost to 2,000 streams. Ooh. All right. Let's keep Not it up, bad. guys. Uh, keep it up. Keep it up. And uh, don't forget to hop on over to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. While you're there, give us a five-star rating. If you haven't already, we appreciate please, those very please, much. Please, 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 please. Yeah. And if you have any filmmaking questions, ask away in the comments section, and we will try to answer them to the best of our knowledge. Also, like our Facebook page, 
we just did our very first Facebook Live. We're going to be doing a few more on the Facebook page, so yeah. give us a like. And you can check out our Facebook Live sessions, ask us some questions. You can see um, us. Oh. Yeah. Oh, man. oh, man. Sweaty and fat. Sweaty for sure. Oh, yeah. It's like a billion degrees in our studio right now. Yeah, I like how you just glaze over the fat part, but uh, I know what I am. So. Well, hey. <laughs> I don't have to tell them that again. <laughs> Told them enough. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. We'll check you next time. Peace. <laughs>